Ephesians chapter 3, we'll read verses 12 through 21. I'm going to finish a message that I started last Sunday night. Let's start at verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. I want to draw your attention this morning to verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. I don't know of a more... Misunderstood verse in all the Bible that's so regularly taken out of context. Several weeks ago as I began to read and meditate on this passage and as the Holy Spirit began to work in my heart, I looked at the context and understood too often we claim this verse or claim this as a promise without getting it in its context. Paul is in prison. In Rome, despite these conditions, as he's writing to the church now, if he didn't stay in verse 1 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4, look what it says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He doesn't even call himself the prisoner of Nero. He says the prisoner of the Lord, knowing that God has a greater purpose in mind. But if he had not stated those words by his writings, we would have never even known of his condition. He doesn't seem overwhelmed by his circumstances. He doesn't seem to be in a dungeon of depression, fearing for his life, concerned about his future, not his physical future nor the future of his ministry, but rather he's leaving his circumstances in God's hands. And he says, for this cause, in verse 14, I bow my knees. Now, Paul was a man of prayer. If there's anything you see in the life of Paul, it was here was a man that lived in a constant state of prayer. And he's praying for this church and these people there at Ephesus. I imagine his mind was going back. He had a lot of time to reminisce about those years that he'd spent in Ephesus. Now, normally when Paul went from city to city, he'd be cast out or chased out of the city within weeks or months. But in this case, he was able to spend several years in Ephesus. You see that. In Acts 18, 19, and 20. But this was a city that was wholly given to idolatry. It was there that they uh, had built that temple to the goddess Diana. And most of you probably remember that Demetrius caused quite a stir. Stirring the people up against Paul. Matter of fact, they grabbed two of his traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. I imagine they were fearing for their lives at that moment. And the crowd is, is screaming. And the problem was Demetrius... He made those idols 
to the goddess Diana and suddenly Paul came preaching and converting the town. And what did Demetrius claim? This man throughout all of Asia, he's turned people away from these false gods and it's hurting our business. And he was extremely upset. And eventually because of this, Paul had to leave the city. I like the part of the story where Paul's wanting to go out there and confront the crowd and the disciples are holding Paul back, saying, Paul, are you insane? You've been stoned, you've been beaten, you've been jailed, and it'll happen again if you go out there and face this crowd. They're angry. You only stir them up worse. And uh, thankfully, the town clerk came out and calmed the crowd down and dismissed them. But in that chapter, you see converts coming and bringing those idols and everything that had to do with witchcraft in their books. And the Bible says they burned it all. Paul remembers those young converts and how they begin to grow and they formed a church. But there he is on his knees. Now, here's the nice thing about prayer. You can do it anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. Isn't that comforting? I like the house of God. I love Sunday mornings. Doesn't the sun seem to shine just a little brighter on Sunday mornings? Doesn't the air seem just a little cleaner? There's just something about being around God's people, knowing you get to study God's word. And I enjoy the Holy Spirit speaking to me throughout the week. But there's nothing like being in God's house with the anticipation that the Holy Spirit's going to do something special in our hearts. But despite that, you don't need to be in God's house in order to get on, on your knees in prayer and communicate with God. I'm glad despite the circumstances this week, and it seems like just about every week of my ministry, I'm in a hospital with someone who is sick or hurting or dying. And it's a comfort to be able to go to those people beside their beds and lift up your voice in prayer, knowing that you have a Heavenly Father that's listening and capable of doing something special on their behalf. And here's what Paul said. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 6, because he encourages the church there at Ephesus. He encourages them to pray. Look what it says in verse 18. Praying uh, always. Now, this is one of the few things in the Christian life that you can do always. I would not encourage you to go to your work and while you are supposed to be fulfilling the duty that that business has hired you to do to open up your Bible and begin to read and highlight and study and cross-reference because most likely you will be fired. You cannot read your Bible always. You cannot soul win always. There are times you simply are restricted, and although you'd like to enter into a conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ, you know at this moment it'd be inappropriate, and I simply can't do it. But when it comes to prayer, we can be in a constant state of mind. Prayer is not a position, but it's a, it's a lifestyle, it's a mentality, it's a dedication to say, I want to be in constant communication with my Lord. He said, praying always, and he was, I believe, everywhere Paul went, everything Paul did. He wasn't waiting for a crisis. He wasn't waiting for a moment of being cast into prison. I believe when he went from town to town, no matter where he was at, early in the morning, late at night, whether it was before his preaching, during his preaching, after his preaching, I believe Paul lived in a constant state of prayer. 
And we do not do enough. We do an injustice to the work of God because as leaders, as pastors, we haven't emphasized prayer enough in the lives of believers. And as a result of that, Christians live powerless and frustrated and servants to sin. Look what it says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. As I've thought about this and meditated on this this week, I wonder how much prayer is done in the spirit. Did you know everything we do, we're supposed to do under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Our entire day is supposed to be done, whether it's working or instructing or driving. Even the spiritual, how much of the spiritual in the spiritual realm do we do outside of the influence of the Holy Spirit? He said, pray in the Spirit. Now, it's obvious that his prayer was done in the Spirit. Go with me back to chapter 16. You know what? Keep your finger there for just a minute. Let's read what his prayer was to see if he was praying in the Spirit. Remember his condition. He's in prison. He is suffering. He knows most likely this trial will lead to his death and it won't be a pleasant death. He'll be beheaded for the cause of Christ. What's his prayer in verse 19? Pray for me. How would we pray in these circumstances? Imagine that you're in a cell, not in a prison, a Texas prison in 2013, which I wouldn't even want to be there. And you're saying, pray for me. We would say that I'd be delivered soon. Pray for me that this trial goes well. Pray for me that the truth is revealed. Pray for me because I'm falsely accused. Pray for me because I don't know how much longer I can handle the pressure of this circumstance. Pray for me because I need a coat and I need food and I need a decent meal. And pray for those that surround me that they would offer me something a little more nutritional and value. He doesn't say any of those things. Now, I don't think that's wrong. I don't believe that's wicked. But I do believe that the majority of our time is spent focusing on the earthly, the temporal, the physical. It consumes us. Look what he says. Pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly. Paul, wait a minute. You're in a cave, literally. You'll be here for years. And your request is... Boldness? His only request that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein, he repeats his request, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. It's not quite the way we would pray. And if you go back and look in chapter 3 at the way he prayed for these people there at the church of Ephesus, and he says... In his command, not just praying always with all prayer in the spirit, but he says pray with all perseverance for all the saints. Now, can you imagine if you went to a church of 15,000 people? Can you imagine the church there at Jerusalem as they read this letter to the Ephesians, a church of 35 or 45, possibly 50,000 members? And Paul just commanded them to pray for all saints? It's a difficult task. We've passed out prayer lists over the past few weeks. 
with church members. And if your name's not on there, we'd love to have your name on there to make sure we are praying for you. But did you know it is a Bible command given to every single Christian? How many of you believe that Ephesians is just as applicable today for the church written to us as it was back then when it was delivered to the church at Ephesus? So we have the same command to be praying always with all perseverance for all saints. This principle alone, this command alone would revolutionize the church. The harmony, the love, the unity, the care that would spring forth out of our hearts if literally every day we were consumed with the fact that we are supposed to be praying for the saints. I went to the hospital yesterday to see Brother Sutton and as he lay there in his bed, I said, uh, so what was it that, that caused you to call the ambulance and come up to the hospital? He said, preacher, I was in prayer for the members of the church and I could picture their face and I couldn't remember their name. And I thought I was having a stroke. All these years of praying for people and name after name and I couldn't put the husband with the wife or the child with the father can you imagine the reason for your concern is as you go through your list, you can't remember who Mike is or who he's married to, and that's your concern. In all my years of visiting hospitals and dealing with the sick, I've never heard that before. There's a man of God that believes in praying for all saints with all perseverance. The problem is that job was not just given to Pastor Bob or Pastor Thompson or to Brother Sutton. That command was clearly given to every single child of God praying with all perseverance for all the saints. Now, once again, let's read this prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus because this is praying in the Spirit. Paul was not praying for their affliction he wasn't praying for their circumstances he wasn't and none of that is wrong but that should not be our primary focus or our primary concern and I truly believe that the majority of our prayer in this day and age is wrapped up and consumed with the physical aspect I want to have the right balance and we need a new building, we need a new property and we need these things in order for our ministry to grow but I never want the consuming drive or the first thought to be facilities because as I travel and talk to preachers it's almost like we measure the success of our ministry based on the worth of a facility. I don't see how that in any form is spiritual or pleasing to God, that's not or should not be our primary concern. It ought to be the welfare of people. And whether or not we have a $2 million facility, really that's up to God, and God will have to provide and open that door. Our primary concern is for each one of these young people and for each marriage and for each teen in the direction they go and for our college students as they prepare for life. All of those things have to be our primary concern. And if we pray in the Spirit, we won't be consumed with, Oh, God, give us an amazing facility, but, Oh, God, help me in my inner man because really 
We are consumed in Christianity with the outer man. It consumes us. It drives us. It motivates us. It's a 24-7 thought process. What will I wear? What will I eat? What will I drink? What kind of impression do I make with this house, this car, this neighborhood? When we're in people's presence, we're concerned even with our stance, our posture. And I'm not against any of that. And we ought to give a good first appearance and first impression. Folks, I don't want you to be confused. I'm not attacking any of that when it's in its right place. But when that becomes our motivation, when that becomes our first priority, outward man... The outward man literally dictates our thoughts, our day. It consumes our every moment. And Paul said, praying in the spirit, God, would you strengthen them? Would you strengthen me? Now, let me ask you this. At this moment, all the outward no longer matters. I'm convinced today Really, our level of spirituality is so low. We think what normal Christianity, normal biblical Christianity, that level would be considered super spirituality. Our level is so low because our mind is consumed with, do my shoes and my purse match? That'll literally take up 20 minutes of a lady's day. And I've got to get to a mall and I've got to find the right combination. It's not, not the right tone of red. Ladies, please don't bring in a red purse and blue shoes. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just saying somewhere in there we have to find a balance where we're more concerned with the inward man than the outward man because our children are growing up with the same philosophy, the same mentality, with almost no concern. They, literally, they can go for days Weeks, they can go sometimes for months without ever considering their inward man. And you get to deal with their inward man. You get to deal with that spirit that's sour. Our children, be careful, growing up in a Christian environment, often are not even approachable. I'm surprised how few Christians are even approachable. You know, we talk about Saul, and we look at that story in the Old Testament, and you see how he went from the hand-picked, the hand-chosen of God to absolute rejection. But that was caused because of pride and being lifted up in pride and an unwillingness to, to address sin. But really, when God sent the man of God there to approach him, to confront him, his downward spiral started because he was unapproachable. Saul, at some point early in his ministry, became totally unconcerned with the inward man. Now, here is what we're looking at this morning. I don't want you to lose focus with me, but this is all intertwined. When Paul says, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly, I love those words. And we've read that and we've looked at that text and we've claimed it or we said, you know what, God, if, if you would just do what I'm thinking, but to do above and beyond what I'm thinking. And God, if you just answer my prayer, but to, to go, Paul says he's not 
just able to do what you pray, but he's able to do more than what you pray. He's not able to do what you think. He's able to do more than what you think. But we're not thinking on a spiritual level. We're thinking on a financial level. Now, folks, I'm thankful in Mexico for that building. And every time we go back and we look at that building, I walk around. Every time I'm there, I go to every room. I go to every corner. I walk up on the platform. I take my time going up the steps. I'm in amazement still years later at what God did. When we go to Pastor Miguel's church and we look at that property, we look at that auditorium, and you had a large part in that. We bought roofs and we bought platforms. We bought concrete. And some of you have actually gone down there. There were some of you that picked up those big metal poles and helped crack the rock so we could put in the foundation on that building. And now Alejandro, this church took up an $18,000 offering and we sent that to Alejandro. Now Alejandro's bought land and they're putting up their building. I want to show you pictures of that. It's amazing to see what God's doing, but the amazement should never be over the financial aspect. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I am much more amazed, not with the building that Alejandro is building or the land that they purchased, or the wonderful location that God has given them. I'm impressed because for the Gamas years ago, I remember picking up this 80-pound kid, driving him across town and watching him sit about halfway back with a smile on his face and thinking to myself, is it worth 45 minutes of my time before every service... I've got to clean the building. I've got to greet the visitors. I've got to arrange the hymn books. I've got to pick up the church. I've got to play the guitar. I've got to lead the music. I've got to preach the sermon. Is it worth 45 minutes of my time to drive across town and pick up that young man and bring him to service and greet everyone, dismiss everyone, haul him back to his house? Well, now that you see the church and now that you see the ministry... And now that you see and hear, oh, preacher, we want Brother Alejandro to preach our conference. And oh, preacher, we want Brother Alejandro to visit our church. Oh, now it's easy to tell. But here's the blessing, knowing that we focus not on a building or on a structure or on the physical or on the outward, but we focus on the heart, the inward of that young man. We've seen God do something that was exceeding abundantly above. All that we ever thought. All that we ever prayed. And our prayer, I don't know if it's done in the spirit. Because a spiritual man is focused on the spirit of man, on the inward. And as Paul looked at this church, and we know in Acts 20, as he gathered those elders together on his way back to Jerusalem and spent a few brief moments with them, he warned them of grievous wolves that would enter in cause confusion and draw men away into false doctrine. He was concerned with their inward man. Let me ask you this. How much do you pray? Before we can get to step two, which is making sure we're praying in the spirit, we, we have to start praying. And I am concerned. I am concerned as your pastor because I do believe we are lacking in prayer. I don't believe 
this consumes our thought or our lives enough. I believe we spend a lot of time talking. You've heard the statistics. Women say an average 10,000 words. I don't know if that was an hour, a minute, or a day. <laughs> 10,000 is the only thing that sticks out in my mind. But if those words, some of those words, and some of that time is not directed towards God, and here's what we do. Truly, we are so deceived in this generation because we look at the outward and we're convinced if someone is serving, if someone is busy, they're a spiritual person. Be careful. I've had to deal with people and problems and sin over the past 20 years. And when I deal with that, I never want to reveal details. But man is curious. Because normally when you deal with sin, it's not someone that's gone out of the church that you're dealing with. You're dealing with someone inside the church who is still outwardly conforming, outwardly performing, outwardly serving and when you address that person there are always people around that look at you and question your decision and say why did you do that why did you make that decision why did you pull that person out of the ministry what they don't understand an outward performance means nothing and is not a reflection of the inward often it's nothing more than a reflection of your character the problem is if you're providing spiritual leadership, I need you to be spiritual. And the spiritual starts with the inward man. That's why Paul's prayer was this. To be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now let me ask you this. What did Paul need at this moment? When you are in literally a dungeon, you're all alone you need to be strengthened in the inward man. At that point, your shoes don't matter. Your match is your least concern. Did you know that each one of us at some point in our life will find ourselves in a circumstance where the outward man and all the attention and all the care that we have taken for the outward man won't matter because that circumstance will require strength in the inward man. And here's where you see so many Christians fall, so many Christians fell, because they never build up strength in the inward man. There was no might by his spirit in the inward man. So when they came to that crisis, when they came to that temptation, when they reached that point of affliction or trouble of soul, there was no inward strength to deal with that situation. That's why Paul said, let's pray in the spirit. How do we pray in the Spirit? That means you'll be looking at your mate, you'll be looking at your leaders, you'll be looking at your children in a different light. And instead of being concerned, I'm, I'm truly convinced, even independent Baptist Christians, they're more concerned about their teenage daughters being beautiful at 16 than being spiritual. Your hair and your nails and your dress and your shoes and your walk and what if you took a look at their spiritual walk and their spiritual desires and their inward man that Christ may dwell in your hearts dwell comfortably in that place where he lives that you be rooted and grounded in love that you may be able to comprehend to know 
the love of Christ. Now, this is important, although it's not the theme of the message this morning. Let me get sidetracked here for just a minute. This is so important, and this ought to be a regular prayer. This ought to be your prayer for each other, your prayer for your children, your prayer for your leaders. When you are in the prison, when you're in these circumstances, what Satan will come and tell you is that God doesn't care. God's not concerned about you. God's not thinking about you. He wants to, to create a crack in the foundation of your faith. And normally that crack begins with this lie. God does not really love you. You better be careful. I've seen it literally dozens of times. People that had their foundation cracked. Here's why Paul was praying. God helped them to be rooted and grounded in love and help them to understand the length and depth and the breadth of your love. Help them to comprehend, to truly know the love of Christ because, Dan, at some point in your life, when you hit a crisis, what if you're sitting in a hospital dealing with chemo and cancer treatments? Uh, what if you have, at some point, Christian, a mate that dies or a child that dies prematurely? What if you deal with a loss of a job and have to go months and months struggling from paycheck to paycheck? Everyone in here at some point will have to deal on some level with tragedy. And if you haven't understood the love of Christ, Satan will put a crack in that foundation of your faith. When that happens, when you find yourself in this spot where Paul found himself, there's a crack. Your whole concept of God has to change because now you're angry. You're frustrated. He's not doing what you thought he should do. Life's not fair. I shouldn't have to suffer this way. You know why we ought to be praying for the inward man? You know why we ought to be praying that we would know and those around us and our leaders and our pastor and our mates would know of the love of God? Because at some point, your faith will be tested. And if you don't truly understand and comprehend, oh, we talk about it and we sing about it. I know you stand in your pew and you raise your hymn book and with great joy you sing, oh, how I love Jesus. But that doesn't mean you understand the love of God. Because one day that tragedy, that crisis, that trial will reveal how much you truly understand and comprehend the love of God. That we might be filled. That's what Paul was saying in his prayer when he said, pray for me that I may speak the word with boldness. You know what he's saying? I want to be filled with the fullness of God, even in this trial, even in this circumstance. Is I go there to the palace and I have the opportunity to witness, I want to be filled with the fullness of God. Forget the bugs, forget the rats, forget my diet, forget the problems, forget the darkness. None of that's an issue. Right now the issue is spiritual and I want to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that we understand the context. We can get to the verse that we wanted to reach this morning. Now, verse 20, what's now mean? Having understood how we should pray, 
those five important principles of being strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man, Christ dwelling comfortably in our hearts, being rooted and grounded in love, knowing the love of Christ, being filled with the fullness of God, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Look what it says. According to the power that worketh in us. You know why most Christians never reach this point? This is progressive. Most Christians are living way below this exceeding abundant above all that we ask or think because here's the perspective we're putting it in. God, you know, we're praying for this house. We're praying for a $120,000 house and we're hoping that you do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. You don't even have to pray for that. Stretch yourself financially and you can get something worth more. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is speaking on a spiritual level because Paul understands the way God wants to use him. Now, look, when Paul says this, there's a little bit of hindsight here. How many remember when Paul got saved? Do you think Paul, when he surrendered, and, and here's what I like about Paul, the Bible says straight way he preached Christ. That's rare. We have a case like that. We, in Mexico, had a young man that went to camp. It was the first time we'd ever seen him, the first time he'd ever come to church. He goes to camp Monday night. He got saved. Came forward crying, shaking, understood his lost condition. We dealt with him, explained him the gospel. He got born again. Tuesday night, he walks the aisle, shaking and crying again. I said, Benjamin, you didn't understand salvation? He said, no, I understood, and I got saved yesterday. God's calling me to preach. Saved on money, called to preach on Tuesday. The next night, he came forward crying and shaking. I said, uh, what's up now? He said, I think God's leading me to Bible college. I said, boy, God's moving fast. <laughs> Did you know the next Monday he went to Bible college? This past year, he graduated in pastoral theology, and now... Benjamin has started a mission church outside of Pachuca, Mexico in the place Brother Mark wanted to go. I told him you can't go. Someone already took your place, filled that spot, started that church. Now, that's rare. That's the only time in all my ministry I've had a case like that. But God was already beginning to use Paul. Straightway he preaches and he goes out. Now, but do you think Paul ever imagined that he would go from city to city in, in Derby, Lystra, Iconium, literally, he's there four weeks, he gets thrown out, he gets stoned, he gets chased out of the city, there's an uproar, they don't want him around. In four weeks, five weeks, six weeks later, the few that he's seen saved, those converts that he's had in those few weeks, start a church. How do you go into a city and six weeks later leave with the church established? It's unheard of. Do you think Paul... Ever dream that he'd look back on his ministry with dozens of churches started and dozens of young men trained? Do you think Paul ever imagined Timothy and Titus and Gaius and Aristarchus and Segundas? Do you think Paul ever believed for a moment when he first got into the ministry that God was going to use him to write 13 books of the Bible? Now, here's what we do. We actually think that's way, way above any of us. And it is. Speaking of you and your limitations and your limited abilities, 
But God says, I want to do something that's way above what you can do or pray or think. You know where it starts? In the inward man. How many of you would like to see God use your children to do the supernatural? So instead of praying, oh God, make my child a great missionary. Oh God, call my child into the ministry. We ought to pray that, but that ought not to consume our thoughts and prayers. We ought to be consumed with, oh God, strengthen my son with might by your spirit in the inner man because today he's going to be faced with temptations. Today, even at school, even in a Christian school environment, God, today I know there will be times he will be offered the opportunity to do wrong. He'll have choices, a multitude of choices. I need him to make every choice the right choice. How is he going to do that? If he is strengthened with the might of the Holy Spirit in the inward man. And here's what we do. We take that verse. It says, unto him that's able, he's able to do. But it starts with the strengthening of the inward man. Now I want you to see this when we'll be done. Turn to Romans 1. Here's the reality of this text. Romans 1 verse 10. Making a request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Who's Paul writing to? The Romans. Right? What's Paul saying? I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'm looking forward to the journey when God allows me to come to you. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end, ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. And let me ask you this. What was Paul's desire? What was his dream? To be able to go to Rome and preach in Rome. That's what he was thinking. That's what he was praying for. But God wanted to do something exceeding abundantly above anything that Paul would ask or think. Now, where's Paul writing this letter from? The letter to the Ephesians. Rome. Let me see, Paul. You didn't get to go to Rome the way you thought or planned in visit those Christians and establish that church. But God used you to write a letter to the Romans, a book of doctrinal excellence. Now, Paul, I hate to admit it, but your trip there would have been very limited. And Nero at that time was chasing out all the Christians. Do you remember that Paul was able to use Priscilla and Aquila because they'd been chased, the Christians had been chased out of Rome? So Paul you would have probably lost your life trying to venture into Rome. That wasn't God's will. That was your thought. That was your prayer. And God said, I'm going to give you years in Rome. Matter of fact, I'm going to put you in the palace so you can even preach in the palace. I'm going to allow you the opportunity to preach to the powerful Praetorian guard. Uh, God said, I have something much greater. And Paul, if you would go and preach, your impact would, would be very short-lived, very limited. Within a week, they wouldn't even remember what you preached. But Paul, I'm going to allow you to write a letter that will have impact for centuries, not just in a city, but across the globe called the Book of Romans. 
Did you know it was there in that prison in Rome that he wrote Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, Philemon? You understand? Paul's thoughts were, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this trip. I'm going to travel up. I'm going to preach to you, get some Christians together. And God said, oh, no, Paul, that's way too limited in its scale. Paul, I'm not even going to let you get beat. Now, you won't like your hotel accommodations, but you'll get a right. People will visit you. you get to preach. You'll even have a platform to preach the gospel in the palace. Paul, I'm going to do something way above what you think or ask. Now let me ask you this. Do you really want, on a spiritual level, now throw out, throw out what you've been thinking about this text. Because too often we looked at that exceeding abundantly above what we think on the physical level. We're thinking earthly, temporal, physical. God was not, and Paul was not teaching that here. Paul was teaching on a spiritual level. He's saying in your lives, God wants to do something exceeding abundantly above what you think right. In your relationships, in your home with your children. God wants to do something with Colin exceeding abundantly above. Colin sinking car, house, money, marriage. God says, Colin, I think above that on totally different levels. When I went to Bible college, I was thinking evangelism. God said, Adam, I'm thinking something exceeding abundantly above. I'm thinking of churches being planted. I'm thinking of ministries being started. I never thought of Argentina. I never thought of Pachuca, Mexico. I never thought of those towns and those places and those churches and those ministries. But God had something greater in mind. Let me ask you this. What would happen right here with this group if we get on the same page as God? Now, once again, folks, I'm thankful for the cars you drive and the clothes you match. I'm thankful that no one came in with an orange top and a, and a red skirt. Thankfully, it makes it easier on the eyes when I'm up, up here preaching. But God is concerned about our inward man. And let me ask you this. His first concern is your soul. Have you ever got down on your knees and bowed before him in humility, admitting your condition as a lost sinner? I want you to think about your life for a minute. Think about your life on this earth. Has there ever been a moment when you got down on your knees in humility and said, God, I understand I'm a sinner. I understand because of my sin I'm condemned to hell. But I also understand you in love and mercy sent your son. How many of you remember that time you got down on your knees? How many of you know it changed your life? How many of you didn't even need the verse that says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. When you got up, you knew it. God's first concern is your inward man. But let me say this. Christians, my concern as a pastor is your inward man. 